Well, I struggled this week with what topic to preach about, as I usually do. And I have to say that this one came as a result of listening to a completely secular song that uh, was being performed on Monday night. I was at a concert. And uh, it was dealing with a lady who was waiting and waiting as the years are passing by for her loved one, the one that she loves, uh, to propose to her and for them to get married. And that she, she couldn't wait forever. The years are passing on. And I thought to myself, as I listened to that, I wonder how many years have passed as Christ is waiting for us to be obedient to him. And that was the turning point. I had planned a different thing to speak about, and God used that secular song to, to change my direction. And you'll notice in your bulletin that today <clears throat> the message is entitled, Time is Running Out, and it's the truth. We can stop there and, and think about that statement for just a little while, that time is running out. But the scriptures have a great deal to say about time and its passing. It's a very important subject. Um, you'll notice also in your bulletins that instead of an outline per se, I decided to try something different. That I have given you every single, single scripture that's in today in order. So that you can look ahead, if you want to, in your Bibles, uh, to where I'm headed. You can even kind of cheat ahead and go read some more passages ahead if you stop listening to my voice. And at least you'll be reading something excellent at that point. Well, let's pray. And uh, we'll... We'll hear what the Lord has to say about our use of time. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for time, uh, for the fact that we are here this morning in this period of time to worship you. We thank you that you allocate time for us to do this. We thank you, Lord, for the liberty to come here this morning and to worship you, to hear your word preached, to sing praises to your name, to participate in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for all these things. Lord, I pray that this morning you will help us to gain a perspective upon our stewardship of time that you've allocated to us, and that, Lord, that you would help us to see where maybe we have been uh, remiss in our duties, and uh, where love has been lost, and where years and uh, decades even, Lord, have been lost to fruitless endeavors. I pray, Lord, your blessing upon your word only. In Jesus' name, amen. We are captives of time. No one seems to have enough of time. Everyone wants more time. And we categorize time into many units, from seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, and millennia. That, that helps us gain perspective on, on time. If you'd stop and think about how things are done and not done in your life, you might be surprised at how much time has to bear on the outcome. Dad, can we stop at the store and get a snack? Lydia often asks after school. And usually my response is, no, sweetie, we don't have time for that today. Hey, Jared, can you help me out with my computer today? Well, I have a little time after my last school rehearsal at 4.30 today, but I have to be at the next rehearsal at 6. Our whole existence greatly involves the management of our time. Why are we so consumed with time management? We are, or why are we so stingy with how we allocate the time we have? 
We are consumed with time management because we are finite creatures. That is to say, we have an allotted amount of time given to us, and once it is used up, we die. It is this concept of an allocated portion of time, an inescapable death, that motivates all living things on this planet. Believers and unbelievers alike are under no pretense as to think that they will live forever. All living things on earth have an expiration date. All things expire. And when someone dies, we often will hear people say something like, well, his time had come. Or, time just ran out for him. Or even, he lived a long life. But we never hear statements like, I thought he would live forever. Or, I just can't believe that he was capable of dying. Our perception of time has become a motivator for us all, and for some, an enemy. But it wasn't always so. We're going to look this morning at the subject of time from a biblical perspective. We're going to look at time's creation, execution, and purpose. First of all, what is time? Well, time is difficult to define or describe, even though it is experienced by all. The online website, freedictionary.com, describes time as a non-spatial continuum in which events occur in apparently irreversible succession from the past through the present to the future. And although I like this definition the best of the resources I was able to check, all of them had references to the past, present, and future. And I find it interesting that the future was always assumed to be in existence. In addition, time is described as a continuum. And the truth is, we don't know how much of a future we, as a planet, have left. Also, um, time, I'm oh, sorry, rather, it is a fixed duration with a definite beginning and a definite end. And let's take a look at the birth of time itself. In Genesis 1, the first five verses, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Heavens and earth, light and darkness, day and night. These were the very first things God created. The day was the first unit of time given to creation. And six of these newly created units of time, called days, were used to bring about all of his creation. What if God had not created the day first? What if he had created the day and time last? First, I would argue to you that time began the moment God spoke the very first thing into being, not just when he created the day. And you see that time was and is defined by God, the creator. It serves his purpose first and foremost. God has a predefined plan that begins before the world was created and ends at a point in the future of which we are unaware of the precise date. We'll look at more of this closely in just a moment. But for right now, I want us to keep looking at creation. Adam and Eve were subject to the unit of days and subsequently subject to time as well. These first people were perfect in holiness while being under the influence of time. Time precedes the fall of man into sin. Adam and Eve were very much aware of days passing by and did not fear an end to their time. 
It is important to note that they were given a command that was going to take many, many days to complete. In Genesis 1, verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this task that was going to take a long time did not inspire fear of being too large or not having enough time to accomplish the task. This is important for us as we evaluate what God has asked us to do. God is the master of all time. You see, brethren, God has set in motion a master plan that, as we have stated, has a definite beginning and end. It is the most complicated plan ever devised. It is currently working like the most precise instrument clicking away towards completion, and nothing, absolutely nothing, will hinder its progress because it is powered and maintained by the omniscient and omnipotent God of the universe. This plan is all about His Son, Jesus Christ, and His redemption of a people, namely us. And let's look at a few texts concerning the planning and timing of God. Concerning Israel and eventually God's people, God says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And also consider Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And as I said earlier, God is primarily concerned with his son and his plan of redemption. And here's a few texts that illustrate that point. Titus 1, verses 1 through 3. I, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And you probably know Romans 5 as well, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all these texts demonstrate the absolute power and planning of God. Everything about Christ's ministry on earth was predetermined. Consider also Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. However, there is more to the planning of God than the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are plenty of texts that point to further events on in the timetable of God. <coughs> Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Hebrews 9 verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. A little later in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And concerning those enemies of Christ, there is a coming day of reckoning where all debts will be settled to God. Revelation 11, verse 18, the, the, the nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. A little later in Revelation 12, uh, 22, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus. These are the last verses from Revelation, and they are the capstone in God's master plan. Of himself, Jesus states that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus was there at the dawn of time, and he is present at its culmination. It is at this realization that we should correct some of our wrong views of God and his master plan. God is not reactionary to events. Rather, he is the orchestrator of them. The reason that God has been able to flawlessly predict the future is because he is the one who has planned the future. To God, brethren, all of time lays flat before him. He sees the beginning as clearly as he sees the present as clearly as he sees the future. Past, present, and future are all present to him. And although God uses time to accomplish his plan, he is not captive to it. Psalm 90, verses 2 through 4. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We as Christians ought to take tremendous comfort in these facts. Nothing can surprise God. Why? Because he has authored all of history. Brethren, even your sin has purpose in the master plan of God. Did you have to be a sinner for you to be redeemed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God? Most assuredly, you did. How can we be sure that the blood of Christ covers all of our sin? Because every sin has been accounted for in the master plan of God. He has seen and planned it all. We do not add a single sin to the amount of sin that God has paid for in the sacrifice of his precious son. We don't surprise God when we sin following our conversion. 
All of our sin, even the ones we are blissfully unaware of, have been marked paid in full by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Does this mean that we are to be callous to our sin as we live our lives? Never. But we are not to doubt that our sin is paid for or that we could somehow commit a sin that cannot be covered. Secondly, we should really take Romans 8.28 seriously. And it reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God has accounted for you in all things that have happened, are happening, and will happen to you from birth to earth, from cradle to coffin. Sometimes we doubt the good part of that verse, thinking that the pain or discomfort we feel is bad. Yet God promises that it is in fact good, even though we cannot recognize it. We can take considerable comfort in knowing that events that cause us pain are bringing God's plan closer to completion. And lastly, we should rejoice in the fact that we know Christ is returning one day. God, who knows the future because he has planned it, has revealed to us that his son is coming again in great power and glory. God does not allow us to know too much about the future, but the coming of Christ is the one great foretold event of God's master plan. Our Savior is returning as the conquering king, not the man of sorrows. And these last two points, that God plans all things to work together for the good of his people, and the fact that Christ is indeed coming again, allowed many of God's people who have gone before us to have the fortitude to remain true to him despite being persecuted even unto death. Brethren, we doubt God's goodness when trivial, discomforting things happen to us. None of us have faced the executioner for the cause of Christ. We need to learn how to trust him now in seasons of ease before his grace is lifted from our country and his enemies lay a hold of us. That time is also foretold by God. It is coming. It is closer today than it was when the Bible was written, and it is closer today than it was yesterday. Next, I want us to look at mankind's relationship to time and what effects our relationship have wrought. First of all, time in and of itself is not the enemy. Adam and Eve were made upright and thus were designed to live forever being fruitful, multiplying, and subduing the earth. Had they not sinned, it is very conceivable that they would still be alive today, continuing their God-given mandate. Time was not the enemy of Adam and Eve, and it is not the enemy of us as well. Consider Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Death, not time, is the enemy of mankind. God pronounced his creation of the day as good. Death is the consequence of sin. And once Adam and Eve sinned, their immortality was terminated by God, and they eventually died. And we have an interesting account of, the peop of people's longevity recorded in Genesis. Of note, Methuselah lived until 969 years of age. My own namesake, Jared, lived for 962 years. And although these two are the longest recorded lives of any time, 
Many others lived for many, many centuries before succumbing to death. Now we may marvel at the length of their lives and wonder what it must have been like to meet many generations of our own descendants, to have exorbitant amounts of time to hone skills, or even to imagine what could have been accomplished or built. Yet all of them, no matter how long granted them life, died. None of them live today as they should have if sin had not entered the world. Obviously, we don't live like that any longer. As before, God enacts a limitation to mankind because of his wickedness. In the days just before the flood, the Bible says in Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God also said in Genesis 6, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And that's quite a jump from almost a thousand years to just over a century. But this is nowhere near the reduction God pronounced on mankind for first sinning against him. We went from never dying to less than a thousand years. Yet we are not even capable of living to 120 years today. Maybe a few of us make it to 110. And generally we're ecstatic when someone reaches 100. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, give us, I'm sorry, Psalm 90 verse 10 gives us some more perspective. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. And this sounds about right for us today. 70 to 80 years, and we're gone. Not only does sin bring about a reduction in life, it causes our lives to be relatively meaningless. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 11. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Talk about hopelessness. Job 14, the first couple verses there. Man who is born of a woman is, is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. In James 4, verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And I said at the beginning of this message that it is this date with our own mortality that causes us to evaluate our time. Everything we do costs us some time. Even sitting here this morning listening to this very message has brought you one hour closer to your demise. Our lifespans were shortened due to rampant sin, yet this should not cause us to merely mope around waiting for our number to be called. If anything, our impending mortality should, be, should cause us to be ever more concerned with using our time wisely for the king. For there is another reason we need to be productive while on earth. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it reads, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is not simply that we die and cease to exist. Rather, we die and then are judged by Christ. And this should be a great impetus to work diligently, to show ourselves as a good workman. And unfortunately, we often bank on what we hope is a long lifespan. We spend minutes, days, hours, weeks, months and even years of our time pursuing our own desires at the expense of God's mandated plan for us, all the while thinking at some point 
we'll get serious about God and devote our time to doing His will. Maybe we wait for the opportune time to start fresh. The truth is, we are not guaranteed our next breath, let alone the next minute, hour, day, week, month, or year. Only God knows our expiration date. Sometimes He allows His saints to live long lives full of years, and they pass into eternity quietly in their sleep. But brethren, a great number of his saints are taken in their prime of life, or simply unexpectedly. Car accidents claim the lives of many, many Christians. Christians choke to death. Christians die in house fires. Christians die in freak accidents. Christian children die just like Christians who are octogenarians. Let me ask you, what guarantee do you have that you will make it home safely today following our service? How do you know this is not the last time you will ever visit and attend the worship services at Thornville Baptist Church? The verses that proceed and follow Psalm 90 verse 10 read, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And I want us to remember Psalm 90 verse 12 this week. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Make it one of your Bible verses for the week. There is an urgency to obey Christ. We only have so long on earth, no matter what God has allotted for each one of us to do. And we only have that time that's been allotted to do His will. What are you doing with your time? Better question. What are you doing with the time that God has allotted to you? You see, our time is not our time at all. It's His time. We are living off of borrowed breath. Let's get our perspective straight here because frankly, brethren, our time is running out. The sands of time are sinking. We are not as young as we used to be. And for some of us, maybe all of us, we don't know, there are fewer days ahead than what's behind. When are we going to fully commit our lives to God? When are we going to be seriously obedient to Him? When are we going to prioritize what God desires over our own desires? When are we going to do the hard work of sacrifice? No matter how much time we have left, we have less time than we did at first to serve Him. How have you managed your allotted time? Have you made obedience to God's word your first priority, or have you squandered it on your own desires? It is not as if we are without a guide as to what we are to be doing. And let's look at some of the passages that speak directly to the urgency of time and needed action. First, we must understand that there is a time coming when our work will cease. John 9, verse 4, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And the truth, this truth should help us understand that a time of rest awaits us who have been diligent in working while we were able to do so. But it also shows us that God has, a, has designed a day or a season of work. Proverbs 6, 6-8, through eight, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And I know that in my own inner self, my desires are for times of ease. But I wonder often if I'm prepared for the winter that's promised to come. 
2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will uh, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, most people dismiss this passage as being relevant for pastors only. I mean, it was written to Timothy, a pastor, right? True, it was, yet it is relevant for all Christians. We see in Paul's charge to Timothy a readiness apart from a specific time to do what he is equipped to do in season or out of season. In other words, Time has no relevance to this command that's about to come. Do what you have been gifted to do, Timothy. The same should be true of us. Should we utilize our God-given gifts only when it is convenient? And how about those times when it is more than inconvenient for you to exercise your gifts? There are no chance happenings in God's master plan. Those meetings we call coincidence are actually predestined events. When you're inconvenienced by meetings with people, church service times, financial hardships, etc., do you still obey God or do you obey the flesh who desires to benefit only itself above all else? Adjacently, I'd like us to notice the warning of the itching ears. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That was verse 3. Is that not indicative of our society today? And I've said in previous uh, message is that if you don't like the theology of a particular church, no problem. You can just go down the street to the next church and no questions are asked. Just about any theological position, no matter how sane or absurd, can be found heralded from pulpit somewhere. You just have to look long enough. And as disparaging as this is to us who love the truth, we can take a very small but real comfort in the fact that this prophecy is being fulfilled in our lifetime. Brethren, the warning is not merely external for us to point fingers at the failings of others, but rather we need to be on guard for our own ears. We have had people who are members of this very church leave due to ears that were longing to hear what they wanted to hear. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Earlier I compared our trivial sufferings to those in the martyrs of the faith. And regardless of the severity of those sufferings, from the minor discomfort of being ridiculed by our friends, co-workers, or neighbors, to the suffering unto death, all of it is not worth comparing to what awaits us in glory. What do you think the, was in the minds of the martyrs? What were they focused on while they were being tortured to death? Were they thinking of how much they were going to miss this world and its allure? And I know, due to my many accounts that I've read, that they were focused in hopeful anticipation of being with Jesus Christ that very day. And we need to think like this. We need to think that someday we will be with Christ, and all the pain that we have endured will not even be worth comparing to that day. How strong is your hope in seeing that day? Have you relocated your hope in Christ to the back of your mind? Or does it drive you to not consider the consequences of obedience to him? And I pray it's the latter. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Brethren, this passage is relevant for us here at Thornville. And we've been asleep too long. We've allowed ourselves the guilty pleasure of sleeping while the day is burning bright. Verse 12 states that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. You see, sleeping is something that is done at night, yet when morning comes, sleep is supposed to end. The idea here is that although the light has dawned on our hearts, we're still behaving like it's still nighttime. I find that it interesting as well that among the biggie sins, like drunkenness and sexual immorality, lies the little sins of quarreling and jealousy. Instead of these things, we're to put on Christ, which means if there is quarreling or jealousy among us, then we've yet to put on Christ and we're still asleep. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31 This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let, us, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not in mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is the urgency of the gospel. We're to live like this world is passing away because it is passing away. Every day we awaken as one more day closer to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. During this time of waiting for that day, are we putting down more roots into this world or living like we're ready to depart? How comfortable are you trying to make yourself in enemy territory? Because that's what this world is. People may think we're crazy to live like this, and you know what? That's okay. We don't live like this because of unbelief. Let me elaborate. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church almost 2,000 years ago. He said at the beginning of this passage that the time had grown very short. And we stop and read this and reason to ourselves that since it hasn't happened, it's not really a short time, but rather a long time, and therefore it is irrelevant to our lives. Second Peter 3, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, although you may give lip service to saying that you believe his word and his timetable, 
Don't be a scoffer at heart who takes comfort when there is no real comfort to be found. Speaking of scoffers, Jude 1, 17-21 says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Again, a prediction fulfilled in our time that allows for great assurance. And also again, what passions are you following? Ungodly passions, or are you keeping yourself in love and waiting for God's mercy? And I find the concept of waiting here as an action word. Waiting for God is not sitting idly by doing nothing until he surprises us with his coming. No, rather it is an act of waiting, doing the very things he expects us to do, so that he may find us working in the field of harvest when he suddenly appears. Colossians 4, 5-6 through 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How are your dealings with the lost? Are you harsh with them? Are you pleasant with them only if they are pleasant to you? And this passage says that we are to make the best use of time with them. And what is that exactly? It's gracious speech that has been seasoned with salt. In other words, giving the gospel the salt, in a manner that is gracious. That is the best use of time with an unbeliever. And I believe we tend to do one or the other with hardly ever a true combination of the two. You can be gracious in speaking to people and never include a pinch of salt, and they will go away thinking that you are a nice person. Yes, a nice person who is allowing them to walk away into complete and ruinous damnation. Just how nice is that? Or we can hammer them with the gospel without any graciousness in our speech at all. They will go away with a poor representation of who Christ is and questioning what exactly is good about the good news. Either way, they stand in direct opposition to this passage. When talking with unbelievers, share the gospel graciously. And share the gospel. When is it the right time to witness to someone? If we understand God's timetable, that time is always now. What will you do if or when those times are forever gone due to God taking them? All we will know then is that the perfect time to witness and obey God is in the past, never to be realized. Don't plan to start to obey. Simply start obeying. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit is of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I know we've heard this passage countless times, but the urgency of the day approaching is more relevant now than when it was first penned. That day spoken of is right around the corner. Do we spend time considering what we may do to spurn one another on to love and good works? I dare say probably not too much. How about meeting together? 
We have members that have more misses than hits when it comes to meeting with the body of Christ here at Thornville. And we have members who never darken the door of anything but the worship service. How is this not neglecting to meet together? The church only exists when the people are called out of the world to meet together. How are you using your time when you're not attending the few services we have during the week? Are you using God's time appropriately? Or are you using that time chasing your own desires? 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15 reads, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What exactly are you building? And what are you building on? Will it stand the test of fire, or will your life's work be completely consumed? What will you have to present to Christ on that day? Work that stands the test of fire or ashes? Hebrews 5, 11 through 12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Lastly, brethren, we have to use our time to grow. We know that there is something terribly wrong if a child does not grow physically. The same is true of us as spiritual children. Week after week, after month, after month, after year, after year, we are fed good messages here at our church. Our pastor works hard to feed the sheep entrusted to his care. Yet where is the growth? We talk about obedience. We talk about the lack of growth. We wonder why we're stagnant. We need to simply grow up and behave as spiritual adults. When should obedience to God's word start? Right now. When should we repent from our sin? Right now. Why right now? Because we're not guaranteed our next breath. Today, right now, is the day of repentance. Not tomorrow or even when you get home from church. Obedience begins right now and it starts with repentance. What have you been living for that has stunted your growth? Chances are, if your growth is stunted... You've been living for yourself. <clears throat> obeying yourself stands in direct opposition to obeying God. That's why doing spiritual things is always a battle. It isn't easy to fight the flesh. In fact, the longer we acquiesce to the flesh, the stronger it is when we finally battle it at a later time. Although it is hard to do, we must obey God and do the things He desires us to do now while we have time. How long has your Savior waited for you to spend time in devotions with Him? How often has He been left unwelcomed at your table? How long has God the Father waited for you to pray to Him? How long has the Holy Spirit been grieved because you absolutely refuse to do what you know is right? Here's the truth. 
If you're a Christian, your heart yearns for these things, even when we deny doing them. For those outside of the kingdom of God this morning, there is the same ticking clock counting down the seconds of your life as any Christian here. The only difference is that for the Christian, there is hope and life after death, whereas for you, there only awaits the fires of hell. You will burn with the intense heat of God's just wrath for your willful and stubborn rejection of his son, Jesus Christ. There will be no end to your torment, for though the finality of death ends your physical life, there is no death and cessation of the torment for the soul that dies without Christ. Your time is also running out with God's grace. Genesis 6, verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever. Now is the day of salvation. And you've heard me plead with my brothers and sisters in Christ to obey and repent today. And the same urgency applies to you. Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Heeding the urging of God's Spirit for you to repent of your sin and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Trust in his saving work on the cross, dying a substitutionary death that bought and redeemed each and every Christian sitting here this morning out of the bondage of sin and into the kingdom of light. You may not have tomorrow to repent. You may not have the next minute. Life can be taken from us in just an instant. In closing, I just want to read to you from Jude, Jude 1, 24 and 25, his doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your many gifts to us, including a life and time in which to serve you. Thank you for coming into time and redeeming a people for yourself, a people who is shaking their fist in rebellion to you, loving every single moment of our sin, and yet, Lord, you came and loved us while we were yet sinners with an everlasting love. We are thankful for that, Lord. We have all of eternity to praise you and thank you for this wonderful gift of your Son. But we ask, Lord, that while we have time, that we will continue to do this on earth as well, that we will praise you and that we will worship you, that we will obey you and that we will love you. Grant us repentance where we have used our time and effort and energy in a way that was pleasing just for ourselves and not for you. Help us, Lord, to number our days. We thank you for the fact that we have a finite number of days, Lord, which means that this life is passing away and then at one point we will be absent from the body and present with you, never to be taken away. We thank you for that truth as well. Be with us now as we close in prayer. In Jesus' name.